0: Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're beginning a new chapter today, chapter three, which is of God's decree. And uh, chapter three is seven paragraphs, much, much fewer slides for my presentation. Um, and only because uh, there are some things about this chapter um, that we honestly can't get into. And it's not because we choose to. Um, not cover difficult subjects or things like that, it's because much of this is a bit of a divine mystery. It's a little bit hard for us to understand the concept that God plans all things, and yet there is free will. God plans all things, and yet there is sin. Um, So that contradiction, at least what we see as a contradiction, um, is not what God certainly sees as a contradiction, and he tells us that this is the way it is in his word. And it really can't be disagreed with. Why? Because it's in his word. That's the way that it is. So why is it that uh, God can harden someone's heart so that they will not come to salvation and yet um, still tell us that we can, through choice, choose to believe and to be saved? That's difficult. Would you agree with me that that's difficult to grasp how that can be. And so that's why <laughs> there are some aspects of this that we simply have to accept because God's word teaches us these things. And you'll see them. Uh, we do. We are gonna cover a lot of verses because this is not a subject that is only you know here and there and a few places that we're making a bunch of assumptions. That's not the case at all. This doctrine is replete with scripture references. They are throughout God's word. You see this over and over again. Many of them you're very familiar with. You've heard these scriptures. uh, You've seen them and you've heard them in songs. You've sang them in songs. You've heard them in the stories about these different biblical events and things that happens. And, of course, there's a number of them that you've heard not too long ago. You think of Jacob and Esau, you know, that, that Jacob he loved and Esau he hated in his mother's womb. So think about that. So was Esau going to come to salvation? You'd have to argue, no, he wasn't. Well, that's not fair. Because he didn't have a chance. Who are you saying it's not fair to? (laughs) It's not me. I didn't make the decision. It's God, right? So this is the difficulty with dealing of God's decree. So we'll just get that right out in the front so that we know what we're up against as we go through. All right. So first of all, what is a decree? Uh, Well, just in a way of introduction here before we cover the first paragraph. A decree is to command something, to order a point or a sign. That's from Webster's. That's what a de- to decree something is. So obviously you've heard the word decree. It's not like that's a mystery to us what it is. Uh, God has a decorative will, and that's not that he likes to decorate. It's not decorative. It's decorative. Decorative will, uh, or in other words, a sovereign or a secret will, which cannot be resisted and will accomplish all its purposes. So God has decreed that things happen, and they will happen. Can we we accept, without even going very deep into this concept, that if God says this is what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen? There's not a chance that those plans can be thwarted. Do you understand what I mean? Now, this brings up a good example right off the bat of how God's decorative will Causes something to happen that means someone will be damned to hell. No chance of salvation. Judas. Did God need Judas to betray Christ? He he did need him to do that. Could he have used somebody else? He could have. That's not the point. The point is that whoever he chose, Judas in this case, had to betray Christ. Why? That was part of the prophecy of how God's will was going to be fulfilled. Now, you understand, there is a difference between saying, God saw the future and knew that Judas would betray Christ, and that's how he was going to get his will accomplished. Okay, if his will was for Christ to be betrayed, he couldn't leave that to chance. You understand? He could not leave that to chance. That's impossible. It would have to be because he ordered things so that they would happen. Now, you may ask, a good question. I'm not going to answer it yet, but I'll bring up the question. We're going to get, we're going to answer it, just not yet. Did God directly cause Judas to go to the high priest to betray Christ, or make the arrangement to betray Christ, and then ask in the garden, or, or? Did God, through a series of events in Judas's heart and mind and life, cause him to get to the place where he would make the choice to betray Christ? Can you see the difference there? In other words, did God directly make Judas do this? Or did God cause enough events to happen so that Judas would do this? That's, that's a difference. Can you see the difference there? In other words, the difference would be actually making Judas sin versus events and circumstances to happen so that Judas did sin. Now, no matter which way you look at it, that's difficult right off the bat, isn't it? Because God's purpose was only going to be fulfilled through Judas's sin. The Romans had to torture Christ. They had to. Why? That was the prophecy. He was going to be harmed, tortured. Tortured. He had to be crucified. Why? All these things are in the Old Testament. They're all prophecies of what was going to happen. And by the way, if God had chosen some other method, could another method of death for Christ have accomplished the same purposes? Of course it could have. Could he have had Christ in some other way put to death? You know, run through with a sword, whatever. Yes, he could have. But that's not what his plan was. His plan was for him to die on a tree. Old Testament says this. Old Testament says that his face would be marred. He would be like no one. He would not be, his visage would be not like a man. Now, exactly what does that look like? We don't know for sure, but we know that that was the prophecy, and we know that he was tortured very badly. We have to believe that he was so badly tortured that that prophecy was fulfilled. He received stripes, lashes with the web. Old Testament prophecy. Right? So, over and over again, these things that people did that were part of God's plan, part of his decree, had to be accomplished in order for his decree to be fulfilled. That is, would you agree with me that that's a little difficult? At least a little difficult? Maybe very difficult? But it is the way it is. So this is not like, you know, as we work through the entire 1689 Second of Baptist Confession, and we look at all these different doctrines, Um, that the chapters point us toward and we consider the scriptures for all these various doctrines we have to understand that we cannot skip the ones that are hard why well first that means we're not actually teaching the whole counsel of God would you agree which would actually be a sin because we're commanded to teach the whole counsel of God so we have to teach the whole counsel of God but second if there's doctrines that we actually can't talk about pretty weak doctrine then would you agree on that like in other words, if there's some, like if we never talked about baptism, we're Baptists. We're Baptists. If we never talked about baptism because we didn't have a good argument for baptism, you'd have to wonder about how good our doctrine of baptism actually was. Would you agree with me on that? Right? So we are going to cover the things that are difficult and the confession and those who put it together. Well, and of course, this actually goes back to the First London Confession because this was in the First London Confession. It was clearly uh, worked out in a longer way in the Westminster, modified in the Savoy slightly, and then ours is almost the same as the Westminster, very close. Um, These are doctrines that everybody recognizes they have to cover. And everybody, and you know, this is, so how many messages have you heard about this? Not too many. I would argue not too many. You might hear it mentioned in a message, right? But you don't see too many messages on this. Why? It's difficult. It's, it's just difficult. And people can become confused. So as is my style, we will drag it out. <laughs> we will take our time to unpack it and go through it and make sure that we do cover it. But it's not as long because there's just some parts that we just frankly have to accept. It doesn't matter how long we beat it up. It's not going to change uh, the truth. Because the truths are God's word. That's where we're getting them from. It doesn't, it doesn't go beyond that. All right. So, the Baptist Catechism. Question 10 says, "...the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsels of his will, whereby, for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatever comes to pass." Now, this is a a great definition by the Baptist Catechism. It's not exactly what it says in our our, uh, confession because the confession is longer. The Baptist Catechism, which is just a way to teach people the doctrines, uh, it has a shorter answer to this, which is actually a pretty good summary. So the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsels of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatever comes to pass. Look, it's very clear through the scripture, we're going to read some of these verses this morning, that there are many bad things, bad in our eyes, bad in mankind's eyes, that God causes to happen for his glory. Not for ours. Hard to imagine the nation of Israel being taken captive and made slaves by another nation, and how that was good, and yet it accomplished what it what God wanted it to accomplish, which was for His glory. His glory. Now I'm sure that the people of Israel did not walk around saying, "Hey, you know what? At least it's for God's glory. At least this is this, all this horrible torture we're enduring is for God's glory." I, they probably didn't say that. It's difficult to go through tough tough, 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 tough times and just, boy, I had a hard time saying that. Tough times, and then during the tough times to step back and say, well, you know what, this is what God intended, so let's be happy. You know, there's a time for mourning, right? Scripture tells us this. There's a time for that. So there's a time that you must humble yourself and pray, right? But we understand that these things happen. And God causes them and decrees that they happen. So causality becomes a question. We're going to break that down too. Why would God cause this to happen? Or does he actually cause this to happen? Or does he allow it to happen? Right? Now, understand this is where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road. Did God plan it this way? Or did he just react to it happening this way? Are you with me on that? And the difference, in a nutshell, is if he's God or not. If he's God, is he going to be surprised? First of all, he's outside time. So from that perspective alone, of course he isn't going to be surprised. But if he has a plan for the creation for what's going to happen and how it's going to happen, he has to have a comprehensive plan. Otherwise, his plan could be thwarted, right? If he doesn't have a comprehensive plan for how everything happens, how it's all going to come together, then he can't predict the outcome. Do you understand? The variables. In other words, if he doesn't have every part of it planned and orchestrated, then the variables could cause what he wants to have happen not to happen or to happen a different way. Something different could have happened. The placement of God's decree before creation is necessary because everything from the beginning of time flows from God's decree. God did not create the heavens and the earth and then decide what was going to happen. He created it knowing what the plan was. All right, so let's look at the first paragraph. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so, as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, that's not super obvious for exactly what it means, but this is, no question, essentially the doctrine of God's decree. This is it. So the Baptist Catechism in its answer was very, very succinct. This is obviously much longer than that and has got a little more depth to it, but not that it is necessarily that clear. So some of this stuff in the middle here, which is a little confusing, liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. We're going to break it all down. All right. So first of all, it's universality. It's universality. So this the concept of this that it's from all eternity, this is paragraph one, it's universality. Here's a plainly stated, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. All right, so that's it. It's universality is that it covers everything. So in himself, decreed in himself, so this is as sovereign God, he needs nothing or anyone to help with issuing his decrees. Now, that in itself right there is an answer to the question, does God see what happens and then make it part of his plan, or does he plan it? Does he decree it? Does he order it? Does he state it? Well, the confession's wording is that he states it. We'll see multiple scriptures here that back this up. From all eternity, God's decree from, from, are entirely from eternity or before time, he does not change them based on what happens. Now this obviously is fly, flying completely in the will of the idea that man chooses salvation and he has a choice in the matter, which is frankly what the issue is that everybody goes to. This is, that's the issue. Can man choose salvation or not choose salvation? And I'm going to tell you right now the answer to that question. He cannot choose. He cannot choose. Now you say, well, what about whosoever will may come? What about whosoever believeth? Good questions. We're going to cover those passages. Not isogening the text and say, well, because this says this, that means that man makes all the choice. We're also going to talk about the Ordo Salutis. That's going to come up in this chapter. What is the Ordo Salutis? It's the order of salvation. It's that poster on the wall back there next to the storage room that says Ordo Salutis on it. And the Ordo Salutis starts with, by the way, God's decree of election. Who will be saved? God chooses. You say, well... What about those who say that God doesn't choose it so much as he looks in the crystal ball of time, he's outside of time, he can see everyone who's going to get saved, and that's who he makes election. That's who he makes elect. That is the elect. He chooses them because they chose him. Okay. Well, let's, let's, first of all, it's, that's wrong. Let's just get to, right to the end. It's wrong. How is it wrong? The first problem is, is that the argument itself is a bad argument. It's an illogical argument. If God had no choice in who was going to be saved, then he didn't need to make anyone elect. The reference could be those who were going to be saved, those who would become believers. It would not be somebody that God chose. And that's what we see throughout Scripture over and over, is God chose. God's elect. Those who the Father's given to the Son. It's not, we're going to see what happens. So that is a problem to begin with. But the second thing is that how does someone become saved? What is the first step in that individual person, not talking about God's decree now, but in that that person itself that's going to get saved at the moment, and how quick is this? We can't tell you. It's not five milliseconds. We don't know that. What is the first thing that happens to that person? God's word is replete, again, with scriptures about this. What's the first thing that happens? The Holy Spirit turns their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It makes them alive. It quickens them. The Holy Spirit quickens them. The Holy Spirit changes them in a way that a dead person cannot change to a live person. That's what the Scriptures tell us. So it's very clear in the Scripture that this is the first thing that happens. Who sends the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father. The Father sends the Spirit to change someone's heart into flesh. Can a dead person make themselves alive? No. They can't dead person can't pick up the paddles and put it on their chest and shock themselves back to life. It's impossible. Those who are dead, which is how the scripture describes someone who is an unbeliever, they are dead in their trespasses and sin. Their heart is hardened. It is stone, And the Holy Spirit is required to make it flesh. The moment the Holy Spirit makes that person's heart flesh, the person is immediately convicted of their sin. They feel the guilt and the weight of their sin. They completely believe in Jesus Christ. At that moment, they know that he's real. They beg repentance for it, and they believe on Christ. That is salvation. That's it. That's it. Now you say, well, they didn't come forward for an invitation. No, they didn't. They didn't have to. Now, can we also agree that many who are lost, when they, when this happens to them, they don't even know what to say. They don't know what to pray. They don't, know, they don't know what to do. So guess what? They need someone to help them. They need someone to preach the gospel. Maybe they they need somebody to pray with them, show them. You feel this weight, you feel guilty, you want to repent, you, you feel bad, you feel sorry, well then you ask forgiveness, right? You ask forgiveness. Where's the biblical example to ask Jesus to come into your heart? There isn't any. It's not there. By the way, does Jesus come into your heart? Oh man, we're treading on evangelicalism now, aren't we? Does Jesus come into your heart? Does are you are you indwelled by Jesus? You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, not by Jesus. Ask Jesus into your heart is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Bible. And by the way, when you're ready to do that, you're already a believer. Already. Why? Your heart of stone was made into a heart of flesh. At that moment, you've already felt the conviction. You've already believed. Wow. So where did that begin? God sent the Holy Spirit. That's where it began. God sent the Holy Spirit. That means that it was not up to you. Yeah, but <laughs> see what God's word says. It says it or it doesn't say it. Let's see what it says. So this point right here doesn't change what his will is based on what happens. Two verses. Isaiah forty five, twenty one. Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? And who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and Savior, and there is none beside me. You know what he's saying? Like, this particular passage, he is specifically saying, who has decided this was going to happen? I have, the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah. That's what this is. Capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah. If you don't know that, by the way, almost every Bible that uses the different capitalizations of Lord, has a thing in it that explains what that means. When is it L, little o, r, d? When is it capital L, O, r, d? You see these different things. Isaiah 46, 10, next chapter. Declaring from the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand... I will do all my pleasure. What is God saying? What he is saying is, is that I'm going to do things according to my will, my pleasure. When have I decided them? From ancient times. What does ancient times mean in the scripture? It means before time. Even if you say, well, it didn't mean before time. Ancient times means ancient times. Okay, good. God still planned it, and it's going to happen. We got more verses about ancient times. We'll get to them. Yeah. All right. Continue on with the paragraph. By the most wise and holy counsel, refers to the intercommunication within the Trinity, which is morally perfect or holy. Freely means God does as He pleases. See this in Psalm one fifteen three. Also, of course, we just saw that in the Isaiah passages. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Unchangeably means God's decrees do not change. We see this in Hebrews 6.17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Immutability means unchanging. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. God's will does not change. He does not react and change his will according to what happens according to man. Oh, where does this come from? How, how do we see this continuously challenged today? Well, that's unending. We could be doing this class in the 600s. And we would say that, ask the same question, except it would probably have more these and thous and things like that. But you understand that man has always had a problem with this particular issue. What is the particular issue? What is that? Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God is God sovereign, and that's tied into God's decree. So if you think about this, when it says, the immutability of his counsel confirmed by oath. So if he has a plan, but his plan is uncertain because he's depending on man to make a decision, then his will could change, couldn't it? If his will in your life was dependent on you getting saved, And you didn't, then God's will would be thwarted. So, this is both scary and a relief. Why? You cannot say or do the wrong thing to an unbeliever and keep them from getting saved. You do not have to be afraid that you said the wrong thing. You told the gospel the wrong way. You misquoted a scripture. You used the wrong reference, which, by the way, unbelievers don't care about references. I don't even think I can go there. You, you can't say the wrong thing. Why? Because God's will will be accomplished in that person in his time. I don't know if you ever talked to anybody that this has happened to. I have talked to people that said, I can't believe it. I messed this up, I said this, I think I was actually quoting Catholic doctrine, and the person got saved. Well, that is shocking, right? But it shouldn't be, because the reality is, is that if the Holy Spirit is going to turn that person's heart from stone to flesh, it's going to happen. And it could be that you're sharing the gospel with them is the mechanism that God planned to cause that to happen. And the truth is, you don't know if that's the case. He does have plans for how lost are going to become saved, and part of his will is that that's going to be accomplished in the way that he has planned it to happen, and it could involve you. And you don't know it, and you're commanded to share it, so what should you do? You should share it. Oh, man, I've known this guy for 10 years, and I've never said it. Now if I say it, it's going to be awkward. Maybe God was waiting all this time in his will because he knew he was going to get you to the point where this is what you needed was to share the gospel with this person so that they could get saved in front of you and you could realize, I need to change things in my life. I should be sharing this more. What am I doing? That's a good question. We should really ask ourselves that a lot, right? Shouldn't we? What am I doing? Why am I not doing what God tells me to do? Where's the relief? It's not on you. But he may use you. My relative died. Never got saved. I should have shared the gospel more. That's what we say. I should have said it a different way. I should have used a different approach. You know. Be relieved. Relieved. If God's intention for that person to get, was to get saved, they would have been saved. Whether you did it or not, whether you said it the right way, whether you said it at all, if God's intention was for that person to be saved, they would be saved. Yeah, but they never got saved. And God's intention was for them to go to hell and pay for the sin they committed. That's it. Are we in the hard part yet? <laughs> yes, we are. Okay. Since his decrees are based on his most wise and holy counsel, there will never be a reason to change them midstream. Right? So, like, if God has a plan, you now, we already covered the fact that it says that his counsels are is immutab- the immutability, the unchanging of his counsel. We already said, this, read the scripture that says this. And you can think about it. If God's will is based on his most wise and holy counsel, why would he have to change it? He wouldn't. First of all, it wouldn't be immutable. So this verse would be incorrect in Hebrews, right? And you can see how if man is making the choices, and not God, then his will could change. I've I've heard this said so many different ways. Where people just try to get around it. They just try to, they have a hard time with this issue. And so they'll say, well, this is God's decorative will, but we are dealing with God's allowable will, or his will that's permissive. Have you heard that before? In other words, God's plan is for this to happen, but he permits less than that to happen. Completely unscriptural. It's not scriptural. There is no two wills of God. There is one will. Now you could say, well, doesn't God's word say that he would that all men be saved? It does say that, but that's not his will. He would want for all men to be saved, but all men will not be saved. Why? Because he could cause them to be all be saved, correct? He could cause them to all be saved. He does not. In fact, his word tells us about a bunch of people that he specifically caused not to be saved to fulfill his will. And let's not forget, as we go down this path, somewhat down the rabbit hole on this issue, and we discuss it, the fact that none of us deserve salvation. God's grace and mercy to change the hearts and save those who, whom he wills to save, is completely merciful and gracious on his behalf. No one deserves it. You can't say it's not fair because no one deserves it. That's probably the thing we should remember first. You can say, well, that's not fair that person died. Yeah, no, actually it is, because they deserve to go to hell without salvation because they're a sinner. So do you. So do I. We deserve it. That's unbelievable that God in his grace and mercy, would choose to save us from that punishment that we deserve every day. A few of you, maybe every week, because you don't sin every day, but I'm just saying, right? This is true. We all deserve it. It's his mercy and grace that saves us if he chooses some and not others, completely in his prerogative as sovereign God. Can we agree with that? We must agree with it, His word says it, but if you think about the concept of him being God, it's difficult to get around this. You know, there are bigger issues. This is why it takes long to get through these chapters, because I go on these rabbit trails. But (laughs) there are bigger issues that we should be able to grapple with as believers and get our arms around and accept and not have a problem with them, and it will help us to deal with other issues. Now, what do I mean by that? In this particular case, I'm talking about God. But let me give you another example to help you understand the concept of what I'm saying, and then we'll apply it to God. So let's talk about the scriptures. Look, if you believe that the scriptures are God's word, which you all should believe, if the scriptures are God's word, that he wrote them, and that they are truth, no other things that have been written can we consider God's word and truth. Why? Because we're not sure. Right? There could be great stuff that Brantz writes. But is it all God's truth? We don't know. Brandt wrote it. He wasn't inspired. God's word is complete. Canon of scripture. All these things about scripture, all the things we covered as we went through other scripture, all are chinks in the gears that come to, teeth in the gears that come together to completely describe the, the scripture. Now, that includes, by the way, the concept of it being available in the vulgar tongue. What was the vulgar tongue? And you remember, what's the vulgar tongue? What is the vulgar tongue? What's that mean? Vulgar. Common. Vulgar means common. So the scripture, according to our confession, it should be available in the common language. Now, of course, this was withheld by other religions, wasn't it? The scriptures were kept, where they put it, kept it in a language that the common people couldn't understand. Why? It gave them the ability to actually control what the people had. Now, that's not the argument that they used. Certainly, you don't see the Roman Catholic Church writing about not allowing people to understand what the scripture was. It wasn't that. It's because they didn't think the people could understand it. They thought that people would misinterpret it. Now, of course, that kind of would cause them some problems because people would find out that some of the things that they were teaching and holding to in the Roman Catholic Church were not in the Scripture. Right? Now, they, they still exist today, and they don't read the Bible in Latin anymore. They read it in English, and you're allowed to have one. How do they get around that? Well, papal bulls, the words of councils. All of these things equate to scriptures to the Roman Catholics, so they can kind of get around it because they have a whole bunch of additional material they've added. Can you see why that's one of the reasons why this doctrine of scriptures is so important? Because what is the canon of scripture? What is actually God's word? included in Scripture is very important. If you expand that, if you don't believe that, then it could be anything. It could be the Book of Morani, The books of Morani were given to Joseph Smith, so it's the Book of Mormon. It could be those things. They could be Scripture. It could be something that Branson's message this morning. It could be Scripture. It could be the, the Pope's uh, you know, edict on anything. could be the Scripture, equal with You see? So deciding and accepting the doctrine of the canon of Scripture is very important for us. But it's the whole doctrine of Scripture that's important. Do translations matter? They have to matter. Why? Because they say different things, and they mean different things. The meanings are changed in different translations. Does God mean two things, two distinctly different things, so that one translation says it this way, and one translation says it this way, and they're both God's word? They're different. They cannot be both God's word. The challenge is which one more accurately represents what God's word was originally, right? This is the challenge. But we have to understand that translations is an issue that makes a difference. Why? Because if you cut that out of the scripture, you don't even know if you have the scripture. As soon as you start taking parts of scripture and say that it's like we talked about in the last chapter, Like, all the things that talk about God are metaphors. None of them are actually literally describing God. As soon as you say that, now what you're saying is the Scriptures can mean whatever I want it to mean. It's not what God wants it to mean. I can interpret it the way I want to interpret it, and it means something different to me than it means to everybody else. Could that possibly be correct? Could God's truth be different for any of us from each other? Like, can we all have our own position of God's truth? Well, I think this. Well, I think this. way, And we're all right? No. More than likely, we're all wrong. <laughs> Maybe some of us are right. Right? This is, the, this is the concept I'm saying. Of If you understand the concept of the Scripture, the Scripture has to be authoritative. You have to be able to trust it and rely on it. And you can't twist it into something it's not something it doesn't confirm in other passages of Scripture. If you you accept that and you have an all-encompassing view of Scripture, that's going to help you fight off a whole bunch of heresies. That people bring things in that are not in the Scripture. Or they take things and they twist them in Scripture. Like Brans was talking about last week, some of the translations, of course, they've changed the pronouns. They've also changed the definition of the word Deacon. Changed it in other places. So where it says serve, they changed to the deacon. So now we make a woman a deacon. See this? Think it matters? Matters. Same concept applies to God. If you understand that he is sovereign and in control of all things, you can't say, but there's one thing that he doesn't control. And by the way, this is where Armenians go. Now, most people that are Arminian or hold Arminian views do not say, I am an Arminian. They don't, they don't say that. Most people that you run into who hold Reformed beliefs don't say, I am Reformed, right off the bat. You'll, you'll be far more likely to run into people that say, I'm Baptist, and they hold Reformed views than you will to find somebody that says, oh, I'm Reformed. Now, purists... Paul and Brands, they will say that. But you understand, most people won't. Why is that? We're not angry about it, They're not angry. Just ask them. They're not angry. No, you understand You understand what I'm saying, right? Dispensationalists, most dispensationalists will not say I'm a dispensationalist. But they will hold dispensational views. They don't, they don't say that. So, when I say Arminians, I'm not talking about the people who identify themselves as Arminians. I'm saying people that hold the view that man has a free will that is the only thing outside of God's will. Man's will, particularly in his choice for salvation, is up to him, not up to God. Now, can you see how that pinprick in the dam will cause the dam to burst? It would take one person, one in the billions of people, and the estimate I think is very fair, the billions of people that have been saved since the beginning of earth and time, one person in those billions to not get saved to thwart God's entire will. One. Or one person that God did not will to go to hell to get saved to thwart God's entire plan. One. One, you cannot have it both ways. Either God is in charge of all, plans all, has decreed all, or he's in charge of nothing. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. And he's a reactive God. So I ask the question, how do we see this a lot today? Since his decrees are based on his most wise and holy counsel, there'll never be a reason to change them midstream. Has God lost control of the environment on earth? You know that the scriptures tell us specifically that there will never, man will never be destroyed, the earth will never be destroyed by a flood again. Specifically. He doesn't make a promise about earthquakes. He doesn't make a promise about uh, orbits around the sun, solar flares, fire. He doesn't make a promise that those things won't happen. Except he does make a promise of what will happen in the last days, how Christ will return. Does he make a promise on this? You understand that because God tells us in his word that Christ is going to come down on a horse through the air, through the clouds, and with a spoken word, he's going to destroy all the men and the armies that are arrayed against him, that there will be men and armies, there will be a place for them to exist, there will be clouds. Are you with me on all this? In other words, there are certain things that God's word says are going to happen. Well, the things have to exist for them to happen. The earth is not going to be destroyed by man. We're not going to drive our car so much that the Earth environment is gone and we all are dead. A meteorite is not going to hit the Earth and wipe out all of mankind. That's not going to happen. Could a meteorite hit the Earth and wipe out most of mankind? Absolutely, it could. In fact, we have a promise, prophecy about this, do we not? This meteorite has a name. What's it called? Wormwood. Wormwood. How much of the earth is destroyed by wormwood? Pardon? A A third So when you see these things on your Google search index and it comes up with the little articles underneath it and you see that this big old asteroid is coming by the Earth next week, you see this big old asteroid just passed us yesterday, whatever it is, which, by the way, I see, you know, they, they tailor it to your search thing, right? I must search meteorites because I see these warnings all the time. I can't recall ever searching for meteorites, but I have these things, reports about meteorites all the time. They're coming by the Earth all the time. I and mean, If you're not aware of this, this happens all the time. All the time. Big ones. Big ones. There was one the size of Texas not too long ago. There was one that flew past the, it was not quite as close as the moon. It was a little further than, you know, I say a little. I mean, can be a million miles. It's a little further (laughs) in the cosmos scale. But there was one like two weeks ago that flew past. None of these things that happen, man's, Actions, whatever happens on earth, are outside of God's will. He knows it's part of his plan. He has a plan. How's that going to work out? We don't know. Is the environment going to get worse before it gets better? Is it ever going to get better? Hard to argue either way from what we see in prophecy of the scripture. Doesn't address that so much. We do see some bad things happening in prophecy. Hard to say exactly what is going to happen with our environment. But God is not surprised. Hurricanes don't happen and God is shocked. Tornadoes don't spring up and God is not in control. He's not surprised that man is driving cars, is burning fossil fuel, has factories. Cows are having flatulence. All those things that happen to affect the carbon dioxide levels in our atmosphere is not surprising to God. It's part of his will. Yeah, but it's the hottest record summer that we've had in 120 years. So? Is God not in charge? Yeah, by the way, every time you hear, this is the record highest summer in 120 years, 150 years, 180 years, whatever it is, that means that 180 years ago it was hotter. And they weren't driving cars. Agreed? And this happens regularly. Since we started collecting in 1879, this is the second hottest day ever. When was the first time? 1789. Well, guess what? That means that in 1789, it was actually hotter than it is now. Was that because of all the cars? Was that because of the aerosol cans? Was that because of the factories? What was it? It was the cows. <laughs> there were way more cows and sheep. A lot less people, right? So understand that. As far as God goes, and this relates to his decree, he is either sovereign and completely in charge of everything, managing through his will everything that happens, or he's not God. You cannot take part of that away and still have a God who is sovereign and a God who is omnipotent. You can't, all-powerful. You can't do it. All things, then, whatsoever... Make it clear that this is everything. It's Kind of two ways to say the same thing in the confession. Everything that happens is included in God's decree. God's decree is universal. Now, what are some of those things? Well, it's all classes of events. They're included in God's decree, all classes. So we're going to see verses about these things specifically. And the main reason that we're going to see it is, again, we're making the point that God's word tells us about these things that he has decided how it will go. All right. So the first one is good and evil events. Good and evil events. Isaiah 45.7 I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Ooh. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Hmm. Well, that probably got lost in the translation through the years, right? That's not what it originally meant, right? It couldn't be, right? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Amos 3 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be an evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? Job 121, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is Job, famous verse. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. That means that the Lord does something that we think is good, and the Lord does something that we think is bad. Jeremiah fifteen two And it shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? Then thou shalt tell them, Thus saith the Lord, Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. You understand what he's saying in Jeremiah? He's saying those that he planned to die are going to die. Those that he planned are going to get the sword are going to get the sword. Those who are going to get famine are going to have famine. Those who are going to be in captivity are going to get captivity. He's saying he, God, planned those things. Evil things. Captivity, famine, sword, death. God planned them. He didn't react. He wasn't surprised. Oh, well this happened. Well, I better come up with a plan for how they're going to get out of this or what's going to happen when this happens. It's not a surprise. Sinful acts. Yeah, we'll cover this one last today. Sinful acts. Again, all classes of events are included in God's decree, including sinful acts. Here we go. Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Do you understand this? Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it to be good. You understand what he's saying? By the way, who is this? Joseph. And what does he say? Was it evil or was it not evil that his brothers sold him as a slave? It was evil. It was clearly sinful and evil for them to do that. But what does he say? God meant it unto good. He doesn't say God used it for good. Can you see the difference? God meant it for good means that God planned it. He planned it to happen. He meant what you did that was evil. He meant that to be good. He planned that because it was going to be good. He was going to bring something about through that. He planned for that to happen. By the way, the nation of Israel wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that, would it? He didn't say God used it for good. You see the difference? You think this means something different if translation translates this differently and says God used it for good? It takes sovereignty of God right out. God reacted. 2 Samuel 16, 10, And The king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said, to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son, which came forth from my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamin do it? Let him alone, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. Now, if you remember this whole passage, which I know we had—I think maybe when you were covering the Old Testament survey, you talked about it. I can't remember, but I remember that it was preached in the last year or so about this particular passage. David, remarkably, lets someone go in this particular case. And look at what he says, particularly about it. Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. In other words, this person is doing evil, but God is making him do it. God planned for this to happen. Wow. 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 Second Samuel 24, 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, that doesn't really give you a good picture of what that passage and what happens there. But if you recall, this is when David wanted to number all the people of Israel, and he's actually criticized for it, and it's called sin later. It's called sin. Pride, particularly, sin. But here it says he moved David against them to say. The Lord caused David to do this. First Chronicles twenty one one. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. What? And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now you remember what I just read right let's back up and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, "Go number Israel and Judah first chronicles twenty one one covering the same event, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. God used Satan to move in David to send. Why? God was angry. it's what it says. His wrath, his anger was kindled against Israel. He used Satan to bid David to do this thing. Where was David's free will? Ha, ha, ha. You got a little problem there. Job 1, 11 and 12. And put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Who said that? Satan, saying it to God about Job. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself not put, put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. You understand, this is God telling Satan, You have control over everything. I'm giving it to your hand to use it how you want to. You understand what that means? Job doesn't have power. You see? Job does not have power. God gave the power over Job's things to Satan. Luke twenty two twenty two And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. This is Christ speaking. This is Christ speaking, Luke twenty two twenty two, He is saying, the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to be tortured. He's going to be arrested because it was determined. It didn't just happen. God planned it. Acts 2.23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Acts 2.23, what is it saying? God determined counsel and foreknowledge, took the wicked hands, took him, and crucified him. And it was God's plan. It was God's plan to do this. Acts four twenty seven and 28, For a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says that Israel, the people of Israel, the Gentiles, you could think the Roman army, the Roman government, then specifically before that, Pontius Pilate and Herod, all, all, were gathered together. Why? To do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God planned all of that to happen because it was his will. It was not a surprise. It was not a mystery. Somebody didn't make the wrong decision. God decided what was going to happen, and they accomplished his will. Now, that, those are very clear verses that God caused evil events to happen. Right? Right? I mean, you can see over and over again, this is not the only ones, over and over again.